to the second episode of the complete Agnes Varda. This week we are doing the 14th best movie ever made, Cleo from 5 to 7. I'm Matt Gastire, and here with me as usual is Travis Trudell. How are you, Travis? Do you feel this is the 14th best movie ever made? I think this is, uh, it's right up there. Um, those lists are so, uh, are so fickle. There was a Everybody's big change. talking about the lists. Big yeah. change on this year's list, man. <laughs> big change. A lot of angry, a lot of angry white dudes. Lots of angry <laughs> white dudes. There's going to be even more angry white dudes when they go to watch the movie. <laughs> oh, completely. <laughs> completely. Um, well, yeah, uh, the, the number one movie for anybody who is not um, in a film bubble is uh, Gene Dealman. The best movie uh, ever made for the next 10 years, which is pretty cool. I think I, that's a pretty fun thing. I think that's great. And I think the movie, uh, I think that movie uh, is uh, used, uh, the movie we're talking about today as a springboard for that kind of, uh, for the kind of story it was telling. I really, I really do truly think that. Yeah, absolutely. And this wasn't even on the top. Uh, Gene Dealman was, I think, in the low 30s in 2012. Um, so it wasn't that much of a shift. We always have to remember that nobody said it was the best movie ever made. There were just more people who put it on their top 10 list than any other movie. Um, but Cleo was not even in the top 100 uh, in the last list. So um, it made a big jump. And there are two other Varda films in the top 100 which we will get to, uh, obviously, later uh, in this season. Um, but today we are talking about uh, Cleo, probably her most famous movie, certainly her most uh, well-regarded, as that list reflects, at least uh, for the time being. Um, and it's also one of the major debuts of the French New Wave. Uh, well, I shouldn't say debut, <laughs> but it's one of the major uh, sort of films of the French New Wave in that first big tsunami that came uh, in the uh, late 50s and early 60s from about 59 to 62 or 3 were when most of the major filmmakers in the movement um, put out films that got international attention. This this movie played at, at Cannes uh, in competition. Uh, it lost to The Given Word, the first movie to ever win uh, the Palme d'Or from uh south america it's from it's a brazilian film but there were a lot of major films uh in the competition that year devi from ray exterminating angel laclise won the jury prize placido trial of joan of arc brisson's trial of joan of arc long day's journey into night by Sidney lumet the innocents um we don't get film festivals like this anymore, Travis. <laughs> no, no. Well, and it's always funny because, uh, you know, time. Time is always what tells us what was good at a film festival. Right. You know, we might have missed half of the good stuff and we'll only know like 20 years from now. Like, oh, remember that year? That year had everything awesome in it. <laughs> Let's hope. Let's hope we're just um, dumb, present-living people. I really and, hope so. Uh, they're really out there. Um so, uh, I mean, this is uh, a major movie, probably of any of the filmmakers that we've covered so far. Um, I would say that, uh, that this is the earliest in the season that we've gotten to uh, a film of this stature. Um, so we, we haven't had the time to sort of 
ease into Varda as an artist developing uh, in the way that we might have, uh, even with somebody like Kubrick, who people think of as, you know, making a, an all-time classic every time he comes out the gate. Uh, he took about uh, three films until he started making those classics. So uh, here we have Varda, who, you know, by this point was a fairly experienced filmmaker in terms of uh, the actual number of works that she produced. Um, but they were all shorts other than uh, La Pont Court. So here we are, uh, Clio 5 to 7. Um, at this stage in the French New Wave, uh, Godard had made three films. Truffaut, I think, had made two. Um, Varda's former editor, Alain René, had made uh, Last Year at Marion Bad, his second feature um, just a few months before this, it played at Venice uh, in late 1961. So um, thing, they were in the full swing of it here. Um, and Varda was, was of course, uh, being the, the lone woman ident largely identified with the movement, um, one of the late ones to, to release uh, her big international splash film. Of course, she was also one of the early ones in that uh, her first film was largely identified now as the first film of the French New Wave, but that had come many, many years earlier and most people had not seen the film. So this was her first opportunity. This movie played at Cannes. It was reviewed uh, rather dismissively in the New York Times when it was released uh, stateside. Uh, and this was uh, a high-profile uh, release. Uh, I should add that her husband had also made a movie, uh, Lola, uh, Jacques mm -hmm. Demy, uh, which also starred uh, the star of this film, um, Corinne Marchand. Marchand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not in a in a starring role like this, where she's in virtually every shot, um, but certainly, um, you know, memorable. Uh, performance there um that be all being said uh i don't know if you have any sort of other setup to add uh well, for this major film um, yeah and then i'd love to hear your thoughts about it yeah i mean this is a the other great thing about this is that this is uh because of the other films that came before it now there was a system in place to uh, finance movies like this um if we remember back at the point court she had to raise all the money herself and and be independent um, outside of the studio system and now there's you know she set the kind of agenda and then everyone else followed suit and figured out ways to start raising money for movies like this so uh, putting this movie together was a lot easier than her first film uh, by far um, and then yeah you know she had lots of life changes throughout that time she's she's uh, became a mother she got married um, she you know she had all this was she married at that point to him? Yeah, right? Or were I they just partners? think so. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, and then, uh, yeah, she put this out. And this was also a big a big one that she, uh, they, before it went yeah, to Cannes. Yeah, they were married Cons, that year. Yeah, yeah, they were married that year, right? Yeah, before yeah. they went to Cannes, they, uh, or maybe it was post-Cannes, uh, they almost went back to doing it grassroots. They they brought it out to cinema clubs and it kept on getting word of mouth, word of mouth, word of mouth, more attendees to the cinema club showings. 
Um, that's something we really didn't have here in the United States. But in France, uh, cinema clubs were all the thing. They were, uh, you know, they were curated by specific people. And, you know, they would find something, want to show it. You were a member of the cinema club. You came and watched it or you were invited to watch it. And you could see stuff that wasn't being shown in theaters at the time. And because of the word of mouth of this movie, and it just kept on growing and growing and growing and growing. And then it started getting, uh, you know, multiple theater recognition and uh, shown everywhere after that. And it was, uh, she said, you know, having it being shown in theaters and seeing people's reactions to things, it was almost kind of like also having a test screening. She was able to, like, fine-tune a few things as it as it grew larger and larger and larger and it's funny too because even even when even when they finally did the restoration for this uh this uh uh edition we saw recently um in the uh, complete varda set she even highlights like oh i made i made one cut on i made two cuts in this in this one yeah eh, there's one scene that was just like getting rid of these eight frames at the head yeah. and tail of it it just made everything flow so much nicer <laughs> yeah i think that was for the dvd release rather than the um the, the new restoration but yeah i thought that was really interesting um she also mentioned in that i was going to save this but uh she also mentioned in that 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 the final shot in this actually has an error in it, which is oh, that yeah. you can see the tracks uh, of the camera um, from the shot since they're walking towards uh, the camera and the camera is, is pulling back with them. Um, and she she reshot the scene. She convinced uh, the people who had funded the film to give her more money to bring everybody back, redo the scene so that they didn't have the tracks in it. And she didn't like the take. Uh, yeah, she tried it again and she didn't like it and she just thought to herself you know what the magic's gone let's just do this hope maybe i'll get away with it and i certainly didn't notice it the first i i didn't times. notice it it's a power it's a powerful end shot you're Absolutely. looking at faces and you're not thinking yeah. about the world around them but it's it's funny that this movie was shot in sequential order like not like yep. you know not not by camera position, but by uh, scene. So each scene was shot in order. So the first scene they shot was at the getting her tarot cards read, and the last scene they shot was that shot you were talking about leaving the hospital. So you know, as an actor, I have to assume that that creates a fantastic headspace for your character to take the full journey. Yeah. And it probably is really hard to recapture that magic when you get back. Uh, you know, I don't understand how they do it sometimes. I, you know, I work in the film business and I know there's days where like, I just worked on a movie recently where there was an actor who had another commitment. So we literally shot every scene they were in for the rest of the mm. movie in two weeks and then we went back and shot all the coverage and the other sides of every single wow. scene. And I have no idea how actors are capable yeah. of, uh, you know, that energy's gone. Especially when the character has so much energy, it's hard to kind of play off of that and, and work on it. And so it must be really tough to be an actor to do that kind of stuff. I totally agree. And it's also going to be tough for a director. So it's, uh, yeah, I can understand why she would want to keep that shot because it probably does contain a... You know a little bit of cinema magic uh in that yeah scene. well and it's interesting too because the two of them um well we haven't we're we just die, dove right into this movie but we're gonna keep talking about <laughs> it because it's so it's a, it's it's a spectacular movie and plenty to talk about but uh, the the uh in the remembrances uh which she filmed um 
you mm. know, 40 years later, uh, she brought back the two actors and they had, they had not seen each other since the end of, of the filming. And you have to think like that, you know, that these two people had this, you know, probably few days, um, cause he's not in the movie very much, um, yeah. together. And that was, you know, you were capturing this reality of them getting to know each other in those moments, um, in a way that, you know, when you bring people back and you're not wrapped up in that experience of, of relating to each other, you just don't have that same chemistry. There's no way to get that yep. back. Um, I think so, you know, I think that component of it isn't surprising to me, but I think it also reflects the fact that Farda is somebody who, uh, certainly does not mind the seams of cinema showing if it gets at the truth that she's looking for. Um, yeah, which I think, which I think is part of the whole French new wave yes. kind of idea, but I think this movie has a better grasp of that concept uh without it being the thing it's it's it the mechanics of what it's doing in terms of breaking down what cinema is and what's important and what isn't is far more nuanced and 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 handled so much more maturely than i would say some of like jean-luc like breathless for instance yeah you know some of the some of that stuff is like we're doing this stuff just to stick up our middle finger at at normal well, cinema well, it was, it's a, it's directed at cinema it's self-reflexive yeah. in a way that that varda i think really uses cinema both in terms of the invisibility of it but also and you know the storytelling dynamic of it but also the technical components of cinema to you know as a window into uh, things that aren't necessarily that concerned with cinema. I think yeah. some of her later films, you know, we'll definitely talk about, about that, like do become about film in some ways, but I think that only really happens to her when film becomes her life. And, yeah. and, and it's not, and it's still a very personal exploration exploration of cinema in those later works in a way that I think, uh, you're right. Certainly, breathless. Um, a lot of a lot of the Truffaut films that were being made around this time, and 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 the Rene films. I mean, I think the Rene films have a broader um, <clears throat> perspective, and I think they're trying to say something, uh, you know, profound in their own ways. Um, but certainly, something like Last Year at Marion Bad is a you know a cinematic Chinese maze. <laughs> oh yeah. It's like, it's almost like Marion bad is jazz and uh true. And, uh, and, uh, Jean-Luc Godard is punk rock. And then you've got, a uh, you've got, a uh, you've got, a uh, Agnes doing this, uh, fantastic, just a uh, minuet, just this really well-timed, beautiful piece that, uh, highlights everything and does everything. It needs to be this nice little dance that when it's over, it's just, Oh, that was perfect you know just you can't you know there's nothing that you can really kind of you know hang hang around and really pick apart too much because the story has a has such nice flow because it it plays with time you know that that that's the that's one of the best parts about this movie is she set out with intent to make a movie about a passage of time both subjective and objectively so 
a person waiting for information and trying to pass the time to take her mind off waiting for this piece of information about whether or not she's going to have cancer and whether or not she might live or die. And so we're left with her as she whiles away this two hours while waiting for this appointment to keep. And so that that playing with time is fantastic. And it's, and it's so intent. It's so well-intentioned. I mean, you have to have a plan. Like, you can't be freewheeling it as much as a breathless where you just kind of let's grab the camera and go. Like, there's so much intent in this film, but it also feels so of the moment that there, you don't feel the production in it. You feel yeah. like it's 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 happening, which I think is where I say, like, she makes this uh, rejection of film norms feel almost subconscious as opposed to uh, intentional, which is, which that's what I like. It's more of, it's more of that from the point court, which is uh, uh, filming from the gut as opposed to, you know, filming from a place of uh, a, a rejection of all cinema. Yeah. And I think the, the difference between point court and this film is that the, not only does the, technique feel like that but i think also the uh the subtext like the Mm -hmm. the 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 deeper meaning of what she's trying to get at in the film it's i think probably as present as it is in her first movie but it feels a lot less like that's what the movie is about and i think it's a lot easier to step back and view this movie separate from the two, I think, richest readings of the film that, that I think essentially Varda has sort of confirmed that that's what these are, what the movie was about, which is the, the idea of, of time that you just mentioned, and especially it's intertwining with death and a sense of passing the time versus living your life. Um, but then there's also this, I think, pretty pretty straightforward presentation of a woman who moves from being seen to seeing and mm-hmm. the experience of rejecting the idea of um, a, you know, a sense of, of passive superficiality um, that is expected of beautiful women in our society and the embrace of the world around you and a feeling that you are, you know, merely somebody, you know, a random person within that experience. And that's freeing in a way because you are no longer a target. You are uh, your own person who is able to make the decisions that you want to make about your life and, interact with the people that you want to interact with you know there's that moment when she first meets the soldier and she says to him you know normally i don't uh uh you know men always come up to me and normally i don't respond i must have forgotten this time and i think you know there is this sense of like you know it's a it's a performance it's also a a um uh, security thing, you know, a defense, a defense mechanism, because, you know, it happens so often and you don't want to, you know, you don't want to ever let your guard down. 
with, you know, with, with good reason. Um, but to, to not have to do that, to not, you know, be constantly playing to these rules that you have to set for yourself to, to, to embrace chance. Um, it's scary, but it's, it's very freeing. And I think that is, you know, the fact that that is sort of so clearly laid out in the film, you know, especially with the hinge point of the song in the middle, the breaking of the mirror when she drops her purse, the, the, these things I think could very easily, you know, uh, reside in the same place that the, the sort of overly, uh, impressionistic and um romantic uh, florid dialogue of the lovers in Poincourt uh, yeah. resides but it doesn't it doesn't feel that way it feels like you are really living in this woman's life and experiencing the things that she's experiencing and um i think that shift is the greatest shift between these two films and it's what makes this such a rich experience because despite the fact that I think like it, nobody would be fooled by what this movie was about. If they spent time to like sit down and think about it and read about it. Like if you read a convincing piece and there's many out there about, you know, the, the sort of feminist reading of this film, there's pretty much nothing you can say to say that's not true. <laughs> that's not what this movie oh, yeah. is about, but it doesn't feel that way when you're watching it. It doesn't feel like it's didactic or like it is, um, you know, a, a a set of dominoes set up to, you know, end up at the end with the with their point made. Um, it really feels like you are in this woman's life. Yeah, all the all the symbolism that we are we are viewing in this film is. You know, it's not like surrealism where it's like hitting you over the head with symbolism. It's all happening and it happens so naturally without without like overt hitting hitting us on the head with the idea or the thought or, you know, it it, it all feels as a natural part of what's going on. And a lot like when we talked about Kubrick's uh, later films where everything was a uh, was a two act film. Like this is almost exactly the same. We almost have we almost have this very similar structure um, from in the first act and in the second act, where you know we have that song in the middle that kind of flips it, and then we have her you know taking another car ride, and it's a different car ride from the first car ride, but it's still a car ride, and now she's seeing things in a different way, and where you know we're you know she's visiting a cafe just like she visited the first time so there's this almost a mirroring which also plays within the film this idea of mirrors but there's a mirroring going on of we see her experiencing all these experiences first and then we see her finally experiencing all these experiences for the first time um and it's so it's absolutely fantastic that this is happening without, like you said, without it feeling didactic. It doesn't feel like, pay attention to this. Here's a here, here's a moral in here. Here's a lesson in here for you to kind of to pick up on. And it's done beautifully. I mean, it, it could have been so heavy-handed with so much of what it was doing. I mean, at the beginning of the movie, she's uh, got a polka dot dress on. Then she moves to all white. Yeah. And then she moves to all black at the halfway point, And then... You know, it, it 
that could be heavy handed. That could be yeah, she Luke gives Skywalker. Away the hat. Mo- yeah, she gives away the hat. That could be Luke Skywalker in the three Star Wars films going from white to gray to black. Um, it could be so obvious, but it isn't because we've set up that fashion is a part of what she is. And so her rejecting kind of the uh, the frills and the fancy for a plain black dress, a simple black dress, to go out back on the town throwing her wig away, uh, getting rid of that other layer of uh, unreality of who she really is and stripping that away. And then, you know, moving through the city again in a, in a different way in which she's finally open to seeing what other people are seeing, listening to what other people are saying, and then, you know, opening yourself up to meeting someone who, at that moment, I mean, they could never meet again the rest of their lives, we don't know, but at that moment, it becomes a very important person just, just for that moment. And we've all had someone like that in our lives where we've met them and they were in our life very briefly, but they meant something for that brief amount of time. And it's very realistic. It doesn't feel it doesn't feel tr- you know contrite or forced. It feels ac- absolutely like at that very moment, she had this moment of her defenses down, and just like the waterfall they're staged in front of, you know, all this emotion can kind of finally f- flow freely without it being all uh, bottled up and like hidden behind all her layers of uh, of uh, different layers of Cleo of who she is. I mean, we even learn at that part of the movie that she, that's not her name. Right. Her name is, uh, was it Flora? Florence. 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 Yeah. Which, you know, so, you know, we also learn that part, you know. So, she, uh, Varda, who we know was methodical in preparing this, you know, we, you know, we watched that, we watched that documentary and we've, I watched uh, lots of uh, interviews, read a lot of stuff, you know, they went from, they made sure that the the route that she took was yeah. timed out with stopwatches to make sure that it was realistic that she could do that. They went to cafes that she wanted to shoot at. You know, they they really used that new wave style of on the streets with people in the crowds. You know, they the, the actress didn't know how to drive, so they were towing the car around so they could uh you know do all that shots that they wanted to do, and it was you know absolutely marvelous. And she was. Uh, allowing. See, this is the thing. <laughs> this is the thing that drives me crazy about a lot of modern filmmaking. Um, everyone thinks that those movies were just made on the fly, that they were making it up as they go along, and sometimes they were. But some of the best ones plan for everything, and then that allows them the freedom to, to, uh, to play. Because if you have everything planned for, then you have a structure, and then you can build off of it. That's uh you know it, it it works so much better that way and I think because she had a structure and she knew that you know what she wanted to do and she had ideas and you know she was looking at paintings and figuring out the you know what kind of uh, story she wanted to tell about a relationship between beauty and death and all that stuff it's just something that was absolutely uh, stunning and so. I think that how uh, Varda uh, composed this film and how she made the film uh, work in terms of its structure, I think, is something to talk about because it has it has a very uh, bifurcated kind of way of it gets to a center point and then we move on. And I think because you know we know that it's a you know 
five to seven, two hours. Um, you know, it has that structure of being that way. And the beauty of it is, is really it's only hour, yeah. hour 45 because that last 15 minutes is left into our heads as to what goes on from here, which I think is also a beautiful thing. Set up the expectations, set up this whole entire structure of look at the clock. This is real time. Look at the clock behind her. This is real time. And it's not jammed in your face. There's no like, you know, there's the uh, there's the uh, subtitle that tells you whose right. point of view and what time it is, but all the clocks in there. There's no close-ups of the clocks to tell you what time it is. But they're all they're, right. But they're all correct. They're all there. <laughs> That's, That's what's so gorgeous about it. Like if you're gonna take the time to set that clock perfectly every single take, most people would be like, "Well, we got to get a shot of the clock. We right. set it. You know, we have to. We have to grab that shot." And Varda, as an artist, knowing no, I don't need that. That's the subtlety. That's the that's the the subtext. That's the uh, subconscious. All that stuff. You know, she's she's well read. She understands psychology, and she she's done that stuff. So she knows that that will that will leak into your brain without having to have it shoved into your eye holes. And I think that's she. Because of this cinema culture that we're talking about, because of these cinema clubs they had, they made a big effort to educate the masses on how to appreciate and watch movies. It's something that's kind of missing in our discourse today. I mean, when you when you relegate everything to a thumb up, thumb down, one, two, three stars, uh, a tomato, rotten tomato score, um, you're getting rid of a lot of the discourse on how to communicate about films and how to discuss them. So because these cinema clubs were taking the time to be like, okay, how do you relate to this? Let's not talk about the subject matter. Let's talk about the style. Let's talk about how this relates to literature, how this relates to plays, how this relates to art. Let's talk about what the director intent was. Let's talk, you know, just all the questions. Like I think, it, I, oh man. I'll have to I'll have to grab it next uh, for the next episode, but uh, uh, there's a book that I'm reading and it had a, and had a, a facsimile copy of the uh, of the uh, questionnaire sheet they handed out mm. at the cinema clubs for this movie oh, for wow. Cleo from five to seven and it was it was fantastic the kind of questions they're asking and because there is this culture of people understanding film there is no need to be there was no need to be so forward with a lot of the ideas. You could be super subtle and, and make it so you're subconsciously picking things up or you're picking it up on the second or third watch of the film because at the time you would, you know, you you don't know the next time you're going to see it. So if you really like something, you would go back to theaters and see it again and again and again. And I think that's where that cinephilia started to kind of really take over in that group of people. And this is the type of movie that it was made for a cinephile, someone who can pick out all these things without it being something that is so force fed to us. And I think that's that's when people talk about the problem with modern cinema nowadays. I think that's one of the big things is just there's a not a contempt for the audience, but there's a. there's a lack of trust in the audience and because there is no trust we can't be subtle anymore and people don't want subtle people want bombastic people want to be told exactly what's going on people want to click on that article that says the meaning of this movie explained and they want to click on that so they can find out if they were correct because everything is some sort of check mark of 
I'm correct about how I interpreted this movie instead of just being happy with your personal interpretation of what's going on. So I think that's what makes this movie so wonderful. And I'm so glad that so many people reassessed it for this modern, uh, this most recent uh, sight and sound poll of greatest films ever made because I think this was overshadowed so much by the breathlesses of the world that this was kind of totally missed out on as part of that movement that handled the material so perfectly. Yeah. And I, I think all, all of, I agree with everything you're saying. I think of a lot of the more kind of critically acclaimed, or at least I guess more popular in, uh, you know, what we would call like uh, bro cinema uh, circles. Um, filmmakers today come from that breathless school uh, none of those people have seen Goddard's later works, which are far more mm. um, interesting and not always as referential uh, to cinema. Um, but I think those movies, you know, created this culture of being referential to cinema, of having a certain stylistic flair that didn't doesn't necessarily always paper over uh the quality of the you know screenwriting or uh other more nuanced elements of filmmaking like somebody like paul thomas anderson who i think is uh, you know a stylist uh mm-hmm. at the end of the day still has especially in his his uh later works um interesting things to say below that um but i think you know a lot of these more to me surface filmmakers like Ari Aster or somebody or um uh the Babylon guy oh, Damien yeah. Chazelle like there's just it's just a lot of uh showing what you can do with the camera mm-hmm. that I think is much less invigorating um once you've seen you know that magic trick done uh, 50 times I'd rather watch a movie about a person and stay with them in moments where nothing is happening or they're seeing other people they're getting invested you know she's getting invested in the people's lives in the second half of this movie she's you know suddenly taking in the world around her and that you know, the way that Varda does that and the control that she's had over this character and over the city, essentially, for the first half of the movie allows that to really come home in a in a rich and, uh, you know, thrilling, honestly, kind of way um, that you don't really get to see in a lot of movies. And I think part of that is just that people are generally too afraid to do it because it mm-hmm. doesn't seem like mo- movies to them you know yeah well that's the thing right that's a are you yeah is it spectacle or is it story like you know what 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 are we doing here yeah. and so i think that's why when i when i talked earlier about how this movie has a big influence on uh, Jean Dielman is because of the fact that it is a movie about time and it's a movie about uh, you know that's that's one of those things right a female filmmakers at that time they weren't taken seriously enough 
And so they were kind of, when they got their financing, people kind of stopped paying attention. They kind of did what they wanted to do. And they told, they were bold. I mean, honestly, like, this movie, Jean Dielman, like, they're telling us a specific story from a specific point of view, and they're playing with time, and they're allowing these moments of mundane, you know, uh, mundanity to 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 be a part of the storytelling because that's part of what life is is sometimes yeah. sitting and waiting, and you know, especially when you have a character who's waiting on news on whether or not she's going to live or die or what her future holds these moments of sitting and waiting uh, can be super dramatic. Just the, the weight of what she's, what she's waiting to hear, you know, and it's a, uh, and it becomes so interesting, you know, cause, cause of that fact, you know, she's, you know, she's, we're given all the time in the world with her, except that last 15 minutes is stolen from us. Just like that kind of, you know, potential of her life is being taken away and shortened. So it's it's beautiful that fact, you know. We could have gone, you know. Some people might have structured it and said, "Well, we got to do the full two hours. It is called from five to seven. So let's, you know, add that fifteen more minutes. Let's have her just continue moving forward and maybe maybe goes to her first treatment or something. You know, any, you know, yeah. no. We're left with that. Like, nope. Guess what? You don't get that last fifteen minutes because yeah, she might not have that last fifteen minutes either. You know, even well, though but she's... also like it could be anything. I mean, like the, exactly. the thing is like five five to seven. We should note, of course, is is oh, a yes. saying in Fran- in French. Um, it's basically like when you go and ha- and, and have, have your sex affair with your mistress, yeah, before you go home <laughs> after work. Um, similar to sort of love in the afternoon kind of uh, saying that we have yeah. uh, on this side of the aisle. But, you know, I think you're right in the sense of most filmmakers would think of that title and say, okay, well, we got to get to seven. Um, But the I I really feel like the idea here is that, you know, what she's the the experience that she's gone through um, leaves her future sort of limitless in its potential. You know, I, I, I think the final shot of this movie uh is a is a much less i mean is a is a much less uh sort of generational statement than what the what i'm about to compare it to but i do think it is similar to the 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 final shot of the graduate graduate yes i knew you were gonna say that as soon as you said that it's a graduate um you know i i think like there is this sense of like well what now um you know she's gonna she has cancer but it seems like it's a fully treatable cancer this guy you know is supposed to ship off they're probably he's probably going to you know that who knows what's going to happen uh in the next 15 minutes let alone an mm-hmm. entire lifetime um so i you know i think that component of it is uh again like very invigorating i just find oh, this yeah. movie like really um uh, engaging and it's one of those movies that like kind of makes you want to make a movie you know mm-hmm. um, and not for the reason of like oh I want to do a shot like that or I want to no. um, you know get it's... get that tone I want to be as cool as this movie it's 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 the feeling of like oh you can tell these kinds of stories with movies and you can live in worlds like this and that's so uh, I mean that to me 
for me, that's the best thing that, that movies can do is, is, you know, bring you into, to a world like this. And it's so funny too, because when most people talk about like their favorite movies of all time, most, most, almost all of them, with the exception of a few rare exceptions where the spectacle is the best part about the movie, it's, it's a simple, it's a simple story of someone's small, small existence. And it's not some grand, not, not a lot of grand scale stuff. And so it's, it's, it's beautiful. Like, cause that's, that's, that's the stuff that makes it so human. Like every part of about this movie is, it, it's just so emotionally human. Like when, when we start this movie, we start with, we, we start with a, a tarot card reading and it's close-ups. It's in color of all these tarot cards and it's all this, you know, nonsense that we believe you know it's this superstition uh you know how many times we understand that tarot cards are just a scam or whatever how many you know how many people you know just this idea that she's so willing to believe what the tarot card reader says so that tells us what we need to know about this character this is a character who's kind of vapid or kind of like self-obsessed and and you know she's 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 so impatient for this uh, science to tell us what's wrong, but she'll go to the, you know, she'll take what the tarot card readers at face value, but the other stuff, the science is just like, well, you know, who knows? Every doctor's right. You know, they're always kind of making up stuff and, and making it. So you have to spend more money kind of thing. Like they have that, like this attitude and, and she is so, it tells us a lot about her character right there off the off the bat that she is invested in this kind of what we consider to be a uh, kind of a uh, you know a, man tarot card reading seems to be so like just kind of self self involved it's it's just something that you know you an ego stroke you go to these people yeah. to get information so you can feel good about yourself or bad about yourself or or whatever it is it's a, it's like a mini mirror it's well, you, you yeah, putting I mean, in even the woman uh you know says like don't look sad when you leave the room because yeah. i don't yeah, want don't everybody look, to think yeah. like i'm a bummer <laughs> <laughs> well and it's funny too because then she turns you know oh, God, so we're already thinking favorite. this so, then she turns right so to the great. guy in the next room it's goes just, she has cancer there's she's just gonna a, die there's just a guy in yeah. the other room reading the paper yeah and he she just opens the door and is like she's fucked and yeah then the guy is like hmm and then he yeah. goes back to reading the paper and she closes and it, the door. And that's so funny because it's like, you know, she's saying all this stuff and she's giving her what she wants to hear a little bit towards the end there. Smile. Don't make it so it's not so bad. Don't worry about no. it. Death death means change. It's nothing crazy. And it's true. Like everything she, everything that is read in those tarot cards happens to her the rest, the rest of the day. Right. And that's, that's also another beautiful thing because by the time you've gotten through the movie, you've already forgotten everything that was in those sure. tarot cards. And so upon another viewing, then you start to realize, oh, my God, she predicted every single thing that's going to happen today, including the cancer diagnosis. Yeah. And I, that's that's an fabulous thing. And then you've got that beautiful shot of her walking out the door and, and getting right into the group. Yeah. People are everyone's looking at her. And at this point, we should really bring in the uh, Michelle Legrand music. Yeah. I just want to mention, though, before we leave the yeah. tarot room. Um you know, laying out the entire plot of your movie at the beginning of the movie always works. Like, it's just a, always a good idea. Like, <laughs> like Citizen Kane. <laughs> oh, yeah. Know, like, it, 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 when you are able to sort of, you know, say, okay, here's the story that I'm going to tell you. 
um, that that's like a great way to get people engaged with your movie. It turns out like in all of our, you know, spoiler culture and, you know, we don't want to know what happens. Like if you are able to tell people what your movie is, you're going to get them engaged. And then if you are able to execute that, um, anyway, that's a, that's a good movie. You did a good job. Yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, exactly. It's that con. Yeah. I, I love that concept. The, the whole concept of just explaining the plot right away yeah. and then telling the movie and have it hit every single one of those beats we talked well, about. Well, Because again, like ultimately that's not what this movie is about. No, there, nobody really cares whether Cleo has cancer or not. I mean, we, you care, like, don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but like, that's not what the movie, like, you're not the whole movie thinking like, oh my God, like what, what's she going to find out? Because that like in her moment to moment experience, it's much more about how she's relating to these people and how these people are relating to her than it is about, you know, a specific like reveal uh-huh. at the end of the movie about what's going to happen to her. That remind that that reminds me of a story, Matt. I went and saw my, the wife and I went and saw uh, Jim Jarmusch's. Uh, was it Broken Blossoms? No, uh, it's the one with uh, Bill Murray. Um, yeah, Broken trying, Blossoms. The Broken father. Blossoms. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. So yes. Yeah, so uh, we're watching that movie, and you know he gets this letter sent to him that he has a he has a child out there in the world, and he now as a as a man rounding out towards the end of his kind of like life and you know, manlyhood and stuff like that wants to go and find out who wrote this who wrote this letter and which one is his uh, potential you know uh, offspring before and before we finish it is broken flowers nobody broken flowers nobody write us yes 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 i don't want to confuse anything with w broken blossoms is griffith yeah <laughs> i knew it was somewhere like oh That's man I, i'm getting this story. wrong <laughs> yes there we go uh but yeah so uh and there's this late, and there's this one scene where he's like, he goes to Sharon Stone's house. He's out back. He's having a cigarette or taking a break for a second. And there's an old typewriter sitting in the backyard. And it really kind of like he he glanced over it as kind of like a world building of this lady's life, and not really kind of like as a mystery. But there was a lady behind me who just the whole time was going, "Oh my God, check the typewriter! Check the typewriter!" And I'm just like. <laughs> Do you really think that's what this movie's about? <laughs> like answering that mystery? Like that's like that's not even close. If you, that's all you've been caring about, then you're really not watching this movie at all. And that's you know saying saying what you're saying about the plot. It's like yeah, that's not what this movie's about. Right. Yeah, yes, she's gonna meet someone. Yes, she's gonna do this, but it's more about her growing into being a a, a better connected person to herself and to the world around yeah it's just dismissing the mechanics of narrative because like it's saying okay you know i'm telling you a story you know i'm telling you a story this is a movie in a regular movie theater (laughs) Um, yeah you know uh so like this is going to be the story so now that we've gotten that out of the way can you watch the movie please Uh uh-huh yeah you don't have to worry hard about the plot anymore (laughs) that's what i'm always always saying hey what, what was that movie about well, it's this guy. No, no. Yeah. That's right. what the plot is. What's the movie about? What's the feeling of the movie? I have to change it always to, what was the feeling of yeah. the movie? That's the only way my kids will uh, understand my question when I say, what was that movie yeah. about? Well, speaking of the feeling of the movie, uh, Michelle Legrand. Yes. Let's talk about that feeling. 
let's talk about the music of this movie, which is, uh, I want to say also truly unique and I don't think had been done in terms of this way before, uh, with the exception of some musicals. But even then, musicals at that point were very, uh, here's the stuff that's going on, now here's a song. And here's the stuff that's going yeah. on, and here's the song. And this is a movie that, you know, the mo- the music moves with her at the beginning of the movie. Like, the the music is timed to everything she is doing. And everything Vard is doing as well. And ev- exactly. The the beats are the cuts are coming on the yeah. beats. The beats are timed to her steps. She's moving in rhythm with the music, even though it's not. It's you know, it's not a diegetic music. It's the music only we're hearing. Except when, except in <laughs> yeah. two moments, right? The first <laughs> moment where she you know is singing with Michelle Legrand uh, in her yep. apartment, and then when she walks out of her apartment, and there's just this kid <laughs> sitting on the, on the piano on the p- playing the p- playing the same song. <laughs> for some reason Wait, and it just picks right yeah. up as it goes I guess, and, and, and I guess Michelle Legrand taught the kid the song on the way in <laughs> oh my god it's so great because then that's because that's when uh because that's where the uh the echo of the film starts yeah. the darker echo right which is hilarious because that's also what's going on with her the short film that she sees later on which also ties into this movie uh which we didn't talk about but is also a short film she made so she also made the short film that is in this movie yeah we'll uh, get to that we'll get to that yeah michelle Legrand. but uh but yeah michelle Legrand. like so yeah so <laughs> the fact that you know it starts off again and this time the first time she steps out of out of the uh, tarot card reading the music kind of is is very assured and almost kind of a little bit uplifting it's not a sad song it it has it has a beat that kind of drives it forward and kind of like uplifts and then when she comes out of that apartment the second time when the kid is playing discordantly on the piano it changes the tone changes it's the same song but it's now almost it's it's almost more more of a dour, more of a sadder kind of a, a melody because now she's in a different she's in a different mindset, but it's the same concept but in a different way. It's it's yeah it's a uh, in the beginning she's moved by the music, and at, by the end, uh, the the music is moved by her in terms of like her emotion. Which is which is is completely different. You get more strings. You get more kind of like, uh, you know, sad, more melancholy por- portions because she's paying more attention to the world around her, and it's not just kind of like this this yeah. upbeat, happy film that's in her head uh, for the first half of the film. It's a uh, it's absolutely fantastic what he's doing with the score of this. Um, it's almost like, <laughs> you know, he was playing along with the movie to make it work, but. You know, he wrote the score for it, and they. Were, I have to assume. I mean, I didn't hear this during the filming of it, but I mean, I have to assume some of the stuff is so perfectly timed. Like, you know, were they did they press a record of it and they were playing it on set to help her get in the mood or get in the mode of like following along, or was he doing it post and just kind of and doing it timed? I'd like to read a little bit more about that. Uh, to uh to kind of figure out of what was going on with the scoring of that yeah i don't know it is amazing i mean that yeah <clears throat> i guess you could just you know tell her to walk walk uh in rhythm because um, we're gonna you know fix it in post uh or you know i i haven't i haven't like 
focused intently on her legs to make sure that the foley wasn't added later (laughs) um but it certainly seems that way and i mean there's that flashy cut of her walking down the steps in rhythm um you know three three or four times as she goes down the steps um that i think you know is kind of the the waving hands of like pay attention to this (laughs) because the first part of it is a little bit more subtle um but yeah, there, uh, there is this, you know, I mean, it, it's a testament to Legrand that he's able to make film music that like this, that feels so much of its era for French pop music, um, but still speaks directly to the film that he's, you know, putting the music into. And, and, you know, uh, he, he did the, the music for Lola and obviously um, for Demi's later masterpieces. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that they were, you know, fairly close and he appears in the movie as, um, Cleo's old, uh, friend, Bob, the pianist, um, uh, Dr. Bob, the one who addresses in the white coat. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I think like they obviously were, you know, I mean, if, 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 um, Renee and Varda were the, sort of key creative relationship on point court um legrand and varda here you know are are the most essential in terms of making this film a realization um of what varda intended um i think the other you know key component of it is the cinematography which you know in in those c2 scenes where she walks out i mean the the distinct difference in terms of the way that the camera is almost sort of spying on her from above Mm -hmm. at the beginning and you know we see people kind of looking at her and we see her reacting to them looking at her as she's walking down the road um that shot also had like a weirdly like a uh sort of because it's just clearly like a actress walking down the street uh with with whoever is on the street anyway um had like that you know killer's kiss like low budget like on the streets of new york city kind of vibe um for me and certainly you know this was not the first um french new wave film to use paris uh, in such a uh, clear way i mean from 400 blows and breathless to um something like paris belongs to us which you know has paris in the title um that that was definitely like a, a a thing like they were you know using the city around them um to really play with that um but here you know because it is in geographical like it makes sense geographically it's uh that much more compelling but anyway i was gonna say like the the second uh scene where she walks out from her apartment um in black it, it's become a much more sort of intimate uh experience it's no it no longer feels like the camera is looking at her it feels like the camera is with her and taking in her surroundings with her um you know when we get that uh the frog the frog eating guy i'm the only person in france performing this feat i wonder why (laughs) yeah because it's absolutely disgusting vomiting frogs where the guy's sticking needles into his biceps it's like oh come on please stop doing that um Um, but yeah but i mean uh, to me like the thing i most come away with is uh 
for of any black and white film uh that i can think of i feel like this is one of the ones where i most want to talk about the colors like it just it feels so dynamic in terms of um you know the use of black super blacks and insane whites and everything in between um you know she mentions in remembrances that they used a green filter in the um uh, the in garden. the park yeah. yeah so that the lawn uh, it was it was just like bright white it looked like snow um the first time that i watched this movie was on vhs um and the uh, you know i it, it had a, a strong impact on me immediately although i think the the biggest impact were the black scenes you know specifically the the musical moment which is which you know oh, yeah. we'll get to um for sure but like uh, and obviously is like the show-stopping moment of the film, but the whites in this movie look so horrible on VHS. And like, oh yeah, it's, they're just it's like eight, everywhere. Yeah, it's like eight and, eight and a half. This and eight and a half looked just atrocious on VHS because of like the the just like insane whites. Um, and even on even on a you know perfectly restored Blu-ray disc, like this movie is just so bright. And white. I mean, her her apartment is just like otherworldly. It's almost you almost feel like you're in heaven, you know, in a, oh, in a yeah. stylized heaven. Well, yeah, and then she's floating around right, in that little gown with, like, with angel wings yeah, on totally. a swing. Yeah, and... <laughs> yeah no, I I agree, and I think uh, in one of the conversations, I think when she's uh, talking to her uh, assistant directors, uh, they talk about how at at the time when you was shot in black and white. Uh, white was something that was a no-no even nowadays yeah. like still like gaffers and dps hate when the rooms are white because it limits it doesn't you know everything is shown there's no there's no way of hiding anything and so it becomes a problem and and so the fact that she's just got an entire room that is just bathed in white and everything is painted white and light is just refracting around in that room making it everything go a little overexposed and it does it has that sense of like a safe a safe heaven a safe haven for her and that's basically what it is right like she's yeah. out in the world um she's she's walking she goes to the cafe and everyone is doting on her and giving her what she wants like are you okay miss I, oh don't worry she's fine well let me bring you this let me bring you that and then they get in the cab and you know she's playing coy with the song because she you know she's i don't think we've even mentioned this she's a pop singer yeah. like she's a famous pop singer in this movie uh that's her character cleo is and how so famous song, do you think she is i think it's kind of like I think it's like lower level, yeah. like enough, but not really. My, it sounds like she has is, two songs yeah. maybe out on the radio. I, and she she says, I think to her friend, she says like she's released like four or five singles, I think. But yeah, but I, I my impression, um, my impression in the in the uh, in the movie is that she's not that successful, and that yes. she has sort of you know created this aura around herself of being uh, a pop star and living the life of a pop star before she is actually has actually become a pop star. Like there is that moment in the cab, which I love because she's like poo pooing her own song and saying, Oh, it's terrible. Like turn it yeah. off. Oh God. And then the oh, woman stop, says, stop, No, I really stop. like this song and they don't play it that much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. No, that's, and that's what I love. Like she's, she's building this, 
almost fictitious world around yeah. herself. She gets to her house and she's got this headache and she has these little kittens running around and everything is kind of like this. It's like this falsehood. You know, everything is just built for comfort for right. her. And, and even her, she, her assistant, I mean, is, yeah. is you know, picking up after her. Says like, oh, she's a child. She's got to, you know, have thing, the reality of life kept from her, basically. Yeah, and then she's got her uh, her lover, who is, I want to say, a doctor, and you can tell he's the one who's kind of putting her up into this lifestyle. Right. Like it's almost kind of like the singing came second because what else is she gonna do? It's like, oh, I I'm a painter because I've got a uh, a boyfriend who right. basically puts me up in this apartment and I've got nothing to do because I just have to be around here for when he wants to come over and have sex. Right. Or an older and rich it, lady. Yeah, or, guy, yeah exa- you know? exactly, exactly, either way. Well, and she's, I mean, she's, you know, I guess if you want to go there, like, she's on a swing in her cage, like, singing. Oh, yeah, like know? a little bird, a <laughs> yeah. little songbird <laughs> yeah. with her wings behind right. her. And yeah. it's, uh, I mean, I love the fact that how strenuous her exercise is. <laughs> Because she's, I think at some point she's like, oh, she's probably tired from exercise. I was like, hanging on that bar yeah. for a couple of seconds. <laughs> what kind of while, exercise while is putting this? On it, while putting on a robe. <laughs> I just think that's great. I love that idea that that's exercise. Yeah. But yeah, no, and that that color, you're absolutely right. You got that striking. Uh, everything has a vibrancy and a and a and a and a lightness to it. And then it's in stark contrast to the second half of the film where. It almost things become more naturalistic and like you were saying, the the voyeuristic aspect of always seeing how she's being presented. And then when you get into the second half of the film, you are you are with her and you are in her you're at street level at that point. So the next time she's walking amongst people, the camera's either right in front of her as you're walking towards the camera, or where her eyes seeing right. the people on the street. And that's that's huge. We didn't have a lot of that because even shots of what she's looking at in the first half, it's over her shoulder. She's still in the frame. Yeah, let's talk about that one moment that I think you might have just been referencing. The cabbie? Uh, no, uh, actually, no. The 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 couple in the cafe who are having an argument about you know the guy wants to sleep at at, at, her, at apartment. her apartment and. You know, if if not, then it's all off. And she says, "Well, then it's off, I guess." Uh, what what up with that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's a. I mean, I think it's part of her. It's 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 weird because she's. She, it's almost like she's distracting herself and listening to the gossip going around, and it's. I think it's also helps her later because that's a moment of seeing a woman kind of stand up for herself and yeah. do the thing that's good for her, which helps her later with this idea of like, no, taking this wig off and changing into something more comfortable and reasonable. And I'm going to go back out in the world and kind of rediscover it again. Yeah. I guess as you're saying that it, it, it could be seen as a sort of like reality poking through for her. Like this, like there is a, a, a different way. Um, and yeah. That, Cause because otherwise, I mean, she's she's a kept woman. He doesn't stay yeah. over. So what if he she started making those demands on him? He'd be like, yeah, no, I'm not I'm not, I'm not staying over. Yeah. Deal with it. <laughs> I also think like that you know there's this establishment at the beginning of the movie of people who I think are pretty clearly actors, 
uh, around her and people mm-hmm. who are pretty clearly not actors around yes. her. And that really pays off in the second half of the movie where you are entering these worlds um, where I assume most of the, you know, if not all of the people with speaking parts in that second half are actors. But because this world has been established so clearly and there is this line between like who is part of the movie and who's just like a lady in Paris Mm-hmm. You really buy into these brief moments of, you know, snatches of dialogue. It's like overheard in New York, you know, there's this oh, idea yeah. of like, you are listening in on this much larger story that you just have no bearing for. And the movie doesn't even know what it's about because it's just some random people that were talking on the side of the road. Yep. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Like the, the way that, the way that it it intermingles so so perfectly because you don't you don't know like no, no one's no one's famous in this movie it's not like you're like that that one scene yeah. where you got a couple at the bar and they're played by a famous couple that then you can you know you can recognize they're everyone in this movie is either probably acting for the first time or from a theater troupe or from someone else's movie and you don't really you don't really know who anyone is so because of that it blends so well into that that uh that blurred line that we talked about in La Pointe Core where we don't know, you know, that one you could tell who the actors yeah. were and who the non actors were, but it's that same it's that same concept of blurring that line between uh reality and fiction, which she does so well. Um And I and think I, the oh, best time, moment that she does that in this movie is the song. Oh yeah. You know, I mean which which you know combines the the music and the cinematography elements that we've been talking about. Um, and you know, it's a, tr- it's a transformative experience, that song for us, the audience, yeah. because this is the first time we've actually heard her singing. We only catch a snippet of her pop right. song in, in the, the in the car. And we actually see the power of her voice in this, in this moment and the power of the words and what she's speaking, which, you know, does that thing that, you know, so many, so many directors try to sum up the emotion of their scene by finding the perfect pop song to play right. for that. And so here they wrote the perfect song to kind of make both us, the audience, aware of the irony of the song she's singing in terms of what her going on in her life and her as a character finally connecting with an emotional thing inside of her that breaks her a little bit. And then visually, some uh, turning the tables on us as well, as the camera slowly rotates around her, around the piano, she moves from being framed completely in white to being framed completely in black, and she also moves from turning away from us to directly looking looking right at us. Yeah. yeah, as the audience and making that emotional connection with us, the audience, as we all realize at the same time what this song means. And I think that the timing of that is absolutely is is stunning. Like that right there for a second feature film, the confidence and the yeah. deafness in which she is pulling off this maneuver without it feeling uh, hokey or or forced or you know magnolia song break in the middle. You know, it's it it has none of that intention. It 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 works for the story, works for the character, 
and it works for the audience and it's an amazing it's an amazing thing to pull off yeah and even i mean like the it's a good comparison um i i like the magnolia song break oh i like it yeah but it's uh, it's more this is more organic (laughs) it's so much more organic but it's also like um it's a moment that feels i think it felt to me the first time i watched this um Art, as artificial as the Magnolia song break. Like I was like, oh, Varda is removing us from this movie to like dive into the, like the world of this movie to dive into this character's psyche as she's singing this song. But really the only way in which the film does that is the addition of the non-diegetic music that, that is being played, you know, the yeah, horns the strings. and the strings. And the horns, yeah. Um, the you know that background is there in her apartment before she starts singing um all all they do is move around and you know face her head on with the camera um there there's it's it's the perfect representation of Varda's line between uh you know reality and fantasy because that that scene works in either way. You can completely read that as a just, you know, her singing the song and they're shooting her in a different way. And yes, maybe there's some overdubs, but like it's, you know, that there's been overdubs already in the movie. It's not like that hasn't happened before. And, or, you know, it's like taking you out of the movie, have this woman sing a song as if she's in a music video. Um, before she snaps back to reality and, you know, through, you know, tosses off her fantasy world. Um, I, it's, it's a stunning moment. Um, you know, and we, I guess we, it, it, I, I guess you could argue it's, it's flashy. It's de- it definitely is more flashy than the rest of the movie or anything we've seen from Varda so far in her career. Um, but it doesn't feel, uh, out of place or, even necessarily like the whole movie is 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 dependent upon it even though the film is hinged at that moment um it just it it feels both like towering and true uh i don't know there's not much else i can say about it like i'm just i i watched it like five times this week and it's just like a really (laughs) remarkable uh feat that she accomplishes it really is. It really is. And I think that's that's what makes it so... And it's so self-assured in what she's doing. That's yeah. the other thing. It isn't like lots of little cuts. It's not lots of little like grab a piece of the fingers on the piano and let's move the camera over here. It's a single shot. And that's that's a lot. Like yeah. that's, that's a big thing to do. You know, we move in and we move around and then she turns and it's almost like she's also on a turntable. The way that she's moving mm-hmm. almost feels unreal as well. Like the way yeah. the camera's moving and the, and her body is countering at the, as like, it's called a, what I used to call it in film school, a contra move. Like you're, you're contra opposing the uh, two movements. So it feels more dynamic. Um, it's, it's, it's really it's really fantastic and then yeah it's almost kind of like what's the uh the hitchcock contra zoom uh that uh, yeah, spielberg Vert- uses in jaws or in, in, in vertigo yeah. yeah it almost has that effect of it's a it's a dynamic of their world shift and so 
it's it's a visual story element that helps us understand the change in her perspective to then move back out into the world in a in a different light yeah it's also her voice i mean yeah. it's a great performance oh it's a great performance and i think varda says at one point when you know they had they had the playback playing and her singing they and they were you know they overdub it at some point but she says the performance she gave singing it there on camera it was like it moved the crew to tears like it was such a a really powerful song in the powerful way that she that she uh, performed it and it is it's a it's it is a it is a it is an amazing piece of filmmaking uh in an already and i think it's also it's also matters on where it comes from because at this point in the story there is a layer of if the fantastic is the wrong word but there is a layer of like almost like light fantasy in her world you know it's this it's this it's this it's this bubblegum world that she has created so we have the you know the layer the layer of fantasy and the tarot card reading to the you know the way that she's uh, being pampered and treated like and the world kept at bay and the way her lover talks to her like a child and then the guys come in putting on these yeah. fake costumes pretending to be doctors like play acting and then at that moment everything changes and so we can accept that song as part of the fake world that she's kind of living in if this song came like at the end or in the middle of the next section of the film it would just it would completely un unfurl everything that she has built at this point it would completely destroy that that section because from here on out everything everything that she's going to experience and interact with uh, is almost like her rebuilding herself from here on out or her interaction with her friend who is a nude model. And they've, you know, and it's, and just seeing her with all this confidence and they have that wonderful conversation about nudity and what it means. And, and that that's when the mirror shatters and there's no longer this idea of like what true beauty is true beauty isn't this fictitious mirror that she's always staring at true beauty is the self-confidence of being able to be naked to the world and be happy with how you look no matter how that look is well and she also talks about how like when she doesn't feel like they're actually looking at her they're you know they're seeing what they want to see yeah Um, they're you know using her as uh, a tool uh, in their poetry, essentially, I think she compares it to. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is, you know, again, that feeling of like, I'm no longer uh, the it, center it, of things. It's, yeah, it's, it's a free, it's freeing as an, uh, an object. I, I might be still be an object, but it does not define who I am. Yeah, and she says that too. She says it's totally freeing, knowing that they're not yeah, looking at me. Right. Yeah, it's 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 beautiful, and then you see her go to meet her uh, to meet her boyfriend, who's uh, who runs a th- film house. They go and they go and pick up the film canisters to drop off over at the at the cinema, and you've got that moment where you know I don't think you expect her boyfriend to be that guy. Like, you know, the way she's just talked and, you know, he just loves movies. He's like, oh, you got to watch this. You got to watch this. You're going to love this. And then we sh- we show that short film, which 
is kind of like a little distillation of everything that we're talking about here, which is this light and dark, this yeah. bad view on things versus this uh, good view on things. And it's, uh, and, you know, and it's also, which is great, it's just Varda wanting to be a jerk and make Jean-Luc Godard not wear sunglasses for a little while, which <laughs> well, I think is hilarious. Just sunglasses in general. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Just give him a little shit about it, you know, which I think is absolutely awesome. Of course she would do that. She's like, oh, so pretentious with those glasses. Let's, let's make a movie about <laughs> your glasses are stupid. Yeah. <laughs> it also has, like, a lot of Paris in it again. You know, a lot of Paris, and, and it has all the famous people of that time yeah. in that scene, which is which is also a great little, you know, we'll talk about the actual, you know, the short film that she released separately later, but, um, did, you know. Did she actually release it, or was it just, um, I don't, you know, I think she sh- I think they, they said something about them showing it at cinema clubs mm-hmm. as a fun, like, like a laugh kind yeah. of thing. But, uh, you know, kind of like everyone joking around, hey, let's watch that. Let's watch the movie. We're all in like kind of like fun. But I don't think I don't think it was something that like she like, you know, did like for real. Yeah. Well, we can talk about it now. I mean, I I think like it was was made for this movie. It wasn't like she made that. And then she was like, oh, wouldn't it be fun to put this in Cleo? Mm -hmm. Um, I guess the first thing I'd ask you is like, why? you think she included a film in the first place or wanted to make a make her go to the theater to watch a short film is it simply just you know that was Varda's life at the time I mean it could be it could be part of what her life is I think it I think it echoes um a lot of what happens at the beginning of the movie where here's another movie that here's another movie explaining what's going on in a very uh in a very kind of like silent film comedic uh, sly way, it's almost like she's uh, she's re yeah using a medium similar to yeah. tarot cards yeah exactly she's restating she's restating her thesis again that this is a movie about you know these how you can how perceptions change and how your world can change due to your perceptions and how you need to kind of uh, you know take the dark glasses off and see things in a better light sometimes which is exactly what happens as well. <laughs> so it's it's I think it's I think it's great and I think it's you know I think also at that time cinema you know going to the movies is such a huge part of the culture of all the culture there that you know it's I'm trying to think like is there in any of the other French new wave films is there is there I know they refer to movies all the time is there scenes of them going to the movies? Yeah, and... well, V versus V. Um, yeah, she, uh, Anna Karina goes to see um, Joan of Arc. Okay, um, that's right. I think that's the only one I can remember. They mention going to see the movies and Jul- uh, going to the movies in Jules and Jim. Yeah, but I don't think they actually go. And um, they talk about it in Breathless a bit as well. Right, sure. But yeah. Yeah. So having her actually make the movie that's she wants to show i mean that's a that's also a very original fun thing like i can't i'm trying to think of like you know except for more modern movies i can't really put a finger on a movie that did that before this i i guess i would have to really dig into the cinema yeah. industry to think about you know it, i but. wonder if it was as simple as like as she was looking for places along this route she was like, "Oh, that's the a movie theater, or that's a movie theater that I go to. Maybe even, um, oh, yeah. might as well, you know, pop in and <laughs> have Cleo watch a, a little short." 
Well, it's also fun because she's, uh, you know, in the beginning of the movie, there is no, you know, the only art form is pop song. And then in the second half of the movie, we have, we have uh, sculpture, we have like mm. art, we have, we have uh, all these, uh, you know, street performers Vomiting doing frogs, stuff. Yeah. Vomiting frogs, similar and to pierce, sculpture, piercing biceps, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then also, uh, also you I know, we have cinema as another art form, right? Performance art, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and then we also have, uh, we have cinema coming in there as well, and it's a, uh, it becomes it becomes more of a exploration of like all the different, you know, just uh, exposure. It's yeah. like what we talk about how how we've uh, how we've. Uh, been able to get a broader shape of what the world is and what the world's potential can be and what other cultures experiences through, through cinema. And it's almost that same thing. It's kind of like a, uh, what movie is it? It's one of the Woody Allen movies where uh, she, Hannah and her sisters, where she goes and watch a Marx brothers movie and it kind of saves her life. Um, it's that same kind of idea using, using a movie to yeah. kind of help, uh, help, uh, help the mentality of uh, what's going on help shape her a little bit more she does she does smile at the end of the movie which i think is one of the few moments where she actually smiles in this movie she's not (laughs) i mean which makes sense like you're waiting yeah it's that moment and the moment where she's dancing down the stairs and singing her song just to herself yeah just to herself not performance and having fun like there's a lightness to what she's doing which is uh, absolutely beautiful yeah and i think that's really the only time in the movie where she's alone too i mean she's mm-hmm. you know usually there's other people um that she's interacting with throughout the movie so it is the and you know i mean there's something to be said for the fact that like you know Varda's not uh dismissing her art inherently um saying you know oh this is just a person who wants to sing to get attention um in this moment where she's alone is the moment where she you know wants to perform uh you know she's enjoying her art uh in a way that is not in any way um being consumed by other people yeah it's being it's almost uh being in touch with your emotions and having emotions that have to come out and the way they come out is in song and dance which is uh which i always find joyful and freeing when i see uh anyone expressing themselves through song or dance in a moment of uh you know pure happiness for a second and it's it's lovely it's an it's a lovely moment and it it kind of it tapers off as she gets to the bottom of the stairs and you see her kind of go back into a little bit into her funk which is good because it's that that's that thing right you can't have you can't have lows without highs you can't have highs without lows and she has a moment of high and then she sinks back down to a bit of a lowness as she starts to contemplate you know that idea again of you know my time is running out yeah and and i love that garden too you know like it's uh I don't. I don't think I've been to it. Um, what is it called? It's. Uh, oh, I had. I, it, I had it in front of me. The the um, the Bardo Observatory that she sees. Yes, um, there you got go. torn down. Uh, it was interesting. So that was built uh, for the expo, the same expo in the 19th century that the Eiffel Tower was built for. It's a replica of a museum um, in in Tunisia. And uh, they converted it into an observatory afterwards, and it had become so uh, 
decrepit by the 70s that they abandoned it and then i guess it burned down in in like 91 or something um but it was it was just such like a little uh you know interesting detail of the movie um but i love the you know she points out like the concrete uh railings that look Mm -hmm. like trees throughout the park um she also mentions in the in the remembrances about the park that uh at the time kids were not allowed to play on the lawn or nobody was allowed on the lawn yeah and she uh, there was actually like a a a protest or a march she marched yeah Yeah. to 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 allow people to go onto the lawn um and then you know she went back in the 2000s and there were a bunch of kids uh yelling yelling and running around uh can we talk for a second about how awesome it is that it's like, hey, we're gonna re-release your movie. You want to? Uh, we're gonna make some special. Well, I'll direct my own special features. <laughs> and it's just it's so it's so beautiful because it's it's part of like kind of what she's always been a part of, which is, you know, uh, you know, being a part of the whole system of it and and telling that story. And you know, she's pulling out all her old pictures and yeah. from that she was taking at the time. And oh, it's absolutely. And her construction of her B-roll in that remembrance is, is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Like uh, the way she lays out the photo play stuff in her, her, in her notebook and all the photo. It's, I, I, I find that stuff fascinating. It's uh, it reminds me like when, uh, which is also, it, this ties into it too. There's a little interview that uh, her and Madonna have, which is yeah. really weirdly edited to disclude everyone else. So it's almost like they're not having a conversation. Yeah, I would have loved to see that full episode. I think that would have been Yeah, I think that would have been way better. But yeah. um, it's almost like uh, they were wanting to do a biopic about Madonna recently. And she said, oh, we're going to do a biopic yeah. about me that I'm going to write it and direct it. Right. And it's like that's exactly if, if if someone said let's make a movie about your life, uh, Varda, she'd be like, oh, I'm gonna write and direct my own. Yeah, it's that that's what I'm gonna do. And it's funny because like <laughs> when you know hearing that Madonna wanted to, uh, the reason uh, for people who haven't seen the extra that that was on the the disc is that Madonna uh, reached out to Agnes Varda to uh, make remake Cleo five to seven with starring Madonna. Um, and yeah. Varda herself, Madonna wanted Varda to direct the film. Um, and it, uh, makes sense from like a thematic perspective. I think they have a lot of overlapping components of their, yeah. um, of their art, but to have Madonna in this role, I think would not be good. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no, no. I think uh, it's funny they blame uh, they blame the financing yeah. on that. Uh, Varda wanted to freelance it and not do a script, and oh, we couldn't get it because of the script. I think a lot of people are like, well, <laughs> I mean, to, I don't just, know about just, this. When when you're the biggest pop star in the world in this role, it means something totally different than the way that this movie comes across and i yeah i don't think that you're you would be able to fully capture any of the magic of this movie um in that way like i think probably i mean i don't know i i don't remember if it was before or after truth or dare but like truth or dare is kind of like she should just make truth or dare because that's pretty much oh yeah what she's going for anyway by remaking this movie so uh-huh um it seems like fine to me but I, I think the thing about remembrances, um, which everybody should absolutely watch, I think it's like a fine 
work on its own. Oh, completely. Um, you know, I just can't, it's hard to think of any other filmmaker in history who's more suited to making supplements to her movies. Yeah. <laughs> it's right? just like, it, it fits into all of her themes and concerns. Um, but it also fits into her strengths so well, you know, her ability to reflect on her own work, her ability to, um, relate to and interview and interact with other people. Um, but it's also the fact that she just like, she delights so much in, in, um, the magic of cinema that I, I can't believe I just said that it sounds super corny, but like <laughs> the, I, what I mean is like the literal magic of it, like the, the, the idea of capturing something in the past, um, mm-hmm. of being able to sort of play with time, both like literally, but also even like she pauses for a moment of like, uh, Marchand, uh, walking down the stairs, um, oh, you know, yeah. like the, she just is always willing to find those little like grace moments that, um, excite her and you can see the playfulness, but also thought that's put into them. Um, and well, it's just, the same, yeah, it's, it's the same, yeah. And it's the same playfulness that makes her, her earlier, those travel films, like totally there's a, there's a, there's a wryness and a wink at us as, as you're making it. It's the same with telling the story of her own movies. You know, the fact that she had a, you know, she refound, uh, I'm blanking on her name. The, the woman who played the model and also was the young woman in, uh, the opera Muff. Oh yeah. Um, I can't uh, blanking on her name right now, but uh, it was uh, it was absolutely fantastic. Uh, Dominique Devray, yeah, yeah, or Dorothy Blank, one of the two. Um, you know, having her go back to the staircase that she ran up at the end of the movie to run back down and wave to us. Uh, you know, fifty years later, <laughs> you know, just like oh, we took a moment to have her say goodbye to us, and uh, yeah. you know, on the same staircase. So that great. She, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's Dorothy. It's, it's Dorothy Blank. Yeah. 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 There you go. Um yeah, it's just like a very uh thoughtful and um and uh enjoyable uh piece and she's also very, you know, honest about the experience of making the movie um for for better and worse um and you know the way she talks about the the, the tracks in the final shot is just um so funny um and you know self <laughs> yeah, because she says it she says it. she goes oh maybe i shouldn't have pointed it yeah out. maybe no one has really seen it all these years i see it every time yeah, it's great <laughs> which is that that's that artist thing right you know you always you only notice the things that went wrong in your movie you don't notice all the things that went right you can't help it yeah i think also like there is something about her in later in life um she she seems to like her movies as much as we do and like <laughs> yeah that's um but she doesn't but, it's she, refreshing. but she's not yeah it's so refreshing but she's not like she doesn't think like uh you know she doesn't do it to build herself up or like say like oh i'm this great artist and look at all these amazing works that i produce but she really likes to continue to engage with her work in this like really compelling and endearing way that I think, you know, a lot of 
artists and you know anybody who produces work basically you know a lot of people are just like oh i don't even want to think about that i'm so embarrassed of it you know i made that when i was 25 or whatever like you just get it out of my face and i'll pretend like it didn't happen so i can like be wiser and smarter now but she really you know is proud of her work which obviously she should be but i think more importantly like really wants to engage with it and think about it um, in the context of the experiences that she's had since then in her life. Well, yeah. And that's that lack of, it's a lack of uh, ego, right? It's that lack of pretension that you're not better than the things you made in the past because of the stature you're at now. Every part of your past is what made you what you are today. So you have to, you have to you have to interact with them to be a better person and that idea that i don't watch those things that was all crap back then it's like well no that's a part of you that's why like this show you know we you go through that journey with that with that director to to talk about like how they change how they've uh, progressed or how they've regressed in some points um and you know that's that's part of kind of like growing i always say uh What was it? I think today. Oh, today. Today we watched the World Cup final, and I think my uh, my daughter or my son said something along the lines of, uh, "Oh, isn't it great to know that you're the person who who uh, you like won the game? You know, what if they missed that?" And I was just like, "You know what? But every single thing that happened here today led to the winning of that game." If that guy yeah. right there didn't pass the ball the way he did to that character, that person, then that that goal wouldn't have been scored. Or if that person was sick that day, like everything mattered. And it's only through the it's only through the long view looking backwards you can see how it got to that point. But every little piece matters, and so to dismiss like the past and to not to you know embrace it and learn from it and grow from it even more um, is basically what we're facing in our world right now and uh it becomes a huge problem (laughs) yeah i mean the flip side of it is that she's able to say oh i didn't like that shot and drop four four frames or whatever yeah just to like make the cut smoother uh, yeah now it's smoother that's it's beautiful yeah and you know and to you know she you know yeah it's a it's a fantastic movie that has for a second film has so much uh substance and style and confidence that it's absolutely stunning to behold like i think i think i also saw this movie for the first time i think it was like a unletterboxed dvd like back in the day um or no maybe it was maybe no no it was the first criterion uh, issuing of it uh one mm-hmm. of the black spine ones yep and you know it looked good but you know for what it was at the time but it still had you know it's still rough it didn't have a, a restoration to it um so but it was a uh, i think the first time i watched it i was not in a place of a deeper cinema uh history for myself so it it was very surface for me and i was like oh this is nice it was just fine and it isn't until like repeated viewings of it over the years and then here for the show I th- I watched it twice and I you know you can just see every single time that uh, 
the intent and the level of filmmaking that went into it, the structure and how the structure is played with, but also maintained, which I think is absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, it doesn't have to spiral out of control to help tell the story, you know, as the character spirals. There's no, it's just a, it's just a beautiful little two hours of a person's life and all the ways in which they can, uh, that they can engage with the world around them instead of holding it at, at arm's length. And I, I find it, it's a breath of fresh air to watch a movie like that. It's like a, it's like a beautiful palate cleanser. You watch something like that and you feel good about watching movies again. Yeah, I agree. I I was always struck by this movie's relatively um softer reputation uh you know for for the the French films that were made in this era. Um and then as I began to watch more Varda films, I was even more struck by just like how not only did this movie you know deserve a higher profile in its historical moment but this is a filmmaker whose career is so full of films that are this engaging and exciting and it just bummed me out that none of those movies got the same attention that this one does like for me uh, the, I like uh, I shouldn't say this because like Jules and Jim is great but I will I I feel like for Go the ahead, most part it out. 400 <laughs> Blows is like the tr- the Truffaut's film and like the rest mm-hmm. of his movies are okay I like Day for Night it's fine whenever like even some of the later uh, Antoine Donnell films are a delight to watch so I you yeah. know I can get really into some later Truffaut stuff um but I don't think he's an especially like significant artist. Um, I think his movies are sort of like solid doubles um, for the most mm-hmm. part. Um, so if people want to watch 400 blows and then, you know, move on to other things, that's fine with me. But like to, to stop here, uh, you are really <laughs> missing out on so much, but not only like, I think, you know, is, is as good as this, but makes this movie richer. Um, and you know, the, the themes of, of reality and fantasy, the, uh, the depictions of women and the perceptions, uh, that women have in represented in this movie are things that concerned Varda for, you know, at least the next, um, 30 years of her career. Um, this is, uh, sure. This is, you know, uh, one of, one of the great films of the French new wave, but it's also the beginning of something, I think just as special, if not more so. And so I just, you know, I, I, I really want, I mean, uh, anybody who's listening to this is probably going to be in on the ride anyway but uh, yeah but like this is not the end of uh beginning and end of varda like this is a very significant work that um that i think announces the arrival of an artist um just as as you know strongly as it um presents itself as as a work of art and i think 
I think that's the the beauty of the most recent sight and sound list is that uh, these movies that were overlooked uh, maybe due to uh, you know uh, un unintended sexism or maybe even intended sexism uh, just kind of uh, now that we're trying to be more modern and thoughtful in what we how we approach a lot of uh, how things are looking um, you know a movie like this then all of a sudden makes it up on the list and uh, now we'll have a whole bunch of new people finally watching it maybe someone for the first time who's finally seen it on this list and now we'll make it into their letterbox list yeah. to try to watch and we'll go and listen to all the podcasts to check it out to see if it's worth their time it's it's definitely worth the time and it's worth and it's a, an amazing starting point it's almost a watch this movie then go back and watch the point court and kind of see how almost fully formed this uh director uh entered the scene and it's uh it's pretty amazing yeah, I think that's fair um, to say this in, you know, I, I uh, accidentally misspoke and said uh, uh, her debut earlier. Um, oh. It's uh, it feels like a debut, though. Um, yeah. Despite the fact that it is so accomplished. Um, whereas, yeah, Point Court has that kind of scrappy experimental vibe which is wonderful uh in its own right but uh this is uh you know where her primary uh concerns and style uh coalesced and um i think we'll see that pretty clearly in the coming movies is there any other uh point or element of this film you wanted to talk about we didn't touch too much on the soldier i don't know that i have that much to say about him um, other than what you know what we've mentioned uh yeah he's he's a he's a he's exactly what she needs at that time uh an actual a person who is seeing her for the first time and not seeing the presented version of herself for the first time yeah and actually being there to listen and to care for a few moments because up until this point everyone has made light of what's coming um, her assistant is just like, oh my god, you're blowing this out of proportion. It's gonna be nothing. And her songwriting team that helps her with her pop songs comes in and they pretend to be doctors with a giant hypodermic needle and <laughs> give her, you know, make light of it again. And this is the first person that, you know, she doesn't really mention it to uh, Dorothy, her friend, because um, she's kind of like along for the ride. She just says, oh, I'm just waiting. I'm just passing the time. Wanted to come visit you. And it's the soldier who really is there to kind of be like, yeah, you know, having to face death sucks. I'm about to go out to Algiers again, and chances are I'm not coming back because this is a horrible war yeah, too. And which which we it, actually didn't mention there. There are yeah. a couple of references um, to the the war uh, throughout the film. Um, so you know, again, Barda is not sort of shying away from the current situation and the, and the politics of the time, uh, through the movie. And it does feel a little bit like reality breaking through, uh, in these moments where, you know, Cleo is trying to run away from reality and, and, you know, figure out how to pass the time without thinking about death and death is this ever present thing. 
Yeah, yeah, you have a relationship. What was that what was that famous line? As soon as you're born, you start dying. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's a. I think uh, I think all we really have left to talk about is our is our our ranking of it now. I didn't know if you wanted to do the ranking because there's a lot of movies. Do you want to keep doing the ranking? I think it's so much fun. Okay, let's because I, I I love reshuffling every <laughs> single week and going okay. Let's do this. Where is this well, going? Well, this is going to be not fun. This is no, not, not surprising. Yeah, <laughs> this is number one. Yes, <laughs> but I will we, say I don't know how long it's going to be number one for me. I need to. Uh, well, there's some rewatches coming up, so I I agree. Well, like we have, uh, I think there's a we got 27 episodes planned for I want to say around 45 entries, so it's a uh, it's a lot of stuff to look at. It's going to be fantastic. And, uh, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to uh, continuing this journey with you. Absolutely. I think with that, we're complete for another week.